Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. Uh, I'm Daniel and today I have a special guest, a young Irish author, public speaker and mental health advocate. He's written a book called Normal and his name is Connor Nolan. So Connor, how are you doing today? Very good, very good indeed. How are you? Good, thank you. And what's the weather like there in Ireland? It is, it's okay. It's a little bit dull, but uh, it's grand. It's not too bad. All right, that's good. Yeah, because over here in Australia, it's freezing cold. So why don't you give me a little overview about your life so far? You're 22, aren't you? That's right, yeah. Okay, so give me a bit of an overview of your life, what's happened. And I'll just let the listeners know that we're going to do a few podcasts over the next few weeks uh, because Connor brought me a load of different topics and issues uh, that he's faced in his 22 years, and uh, I think they're very important issues to discuss. So, yeah, so Connor, tell us a bit about your life so far. As you said, my name is Connor Nolan. I'm 22. Um, I'm an author, I'm a public speaker, and I'm a competitive powerlifter in my spare time as well. My story is it takes place throughout my teenage years, and I suppose at a very young age, I had a, a very difficult battle with anorexia. So, it was a very, I suppose, traumatic experience to have a battle like that with my mental health so young and it was, it was very, it, it really left a mark on me. And so I, I went through a counseling process, you know, at a very young age and that really taught me a lot. And it taught me that, you know, talking about our problems and opening, opening up, you know, really can help us. And it really can change our lives. And it left an effect that I didn't really, I suppose, fully appreciate until later years almost. In my, in my mid-teens, obviously due to the anorexia, I was I was quite small and, and quite thin, and that didn't really help my life with playing sport or anything like that. So yeah. in my mid-teens, in, you know, in an attempt to bulk back up and I suppose get my life back in a sense, I I found a relationship with the gym and with weights and weightlifting and all that sort of stuff that happened around the age of fifteen, and that's a really big part of my life experience, and it taught me of how my physical transformation has showed me how our lives really can change. So I use that as that part of my journey as a, I suppose, a symbol of hope I suppose, for people. Yeah. Um, the reason I entitled my book normal, uh, it comes from, it comes from something I noticed in Irish society and it, it probably does have a place further afield as well. What I found was that as a teenager in Ireland in particular, you're expected to be like everyone else, walk like this and talk like this and, you know, a young guy plays football and a young guy likes cars and, and this kind of stuff. There's, a, there's very much like a, a mold you have to fit into. And yeah, yeah, I don't know stereotype. If it, precisely, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if, if that's very a prominent further field, but I found that in Ireland in particular. So I gave the title normal in, a, in, a, in an ironic sense yeah. and how to show that I suppose following our own visions and our own goals is the most meaningful way, you know, to live life and it, it gives us the most satisfaction. So there's, I suppose, there's a sense of irony to the title. Later, as was in my in my teenage life, after I went to college, I had a, a very difficult battle with depression. And that's when I really learned about, I suppose, the power of opening up. I spoke with friends about my problems and I, I really opened up about my mental health. And when I did that, there was a great realization. I realized that we all have, have a cross to bear because when I opened up to friends of mine, they opened up to me. Yeah. And there were people, people I would have known for quite some time and they told me stuff from their past that, I never knew. I'd known these people one, two, or even maybe even five years. Yeah. So it really shocked me to see, you know, how much people bottle up. And that showed me the the stigma surrounding mental health and how it's so strong, particularly in young men, of course, that yeah. willing to bottle things up. So I wanted to do something to help combat the stigma or confront it. 
and I had an idea one night. I was actually in a nightclub and I had the idea. I said, I'm going to write a book. And that's what led me to this, I suppose, this, this writing process. And thankfully, thankfully, I got the chance to publish my book. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm doing interviews and I'm talking about my story. So it's, it's been a very quick um, leap forward. But, I, but I've really enjoyed, I suppose, bringing the spotlight to mental health and, and talking about this topic. Uh, look, I mean, uh, when you emailed me and said that you thought that uh, what you'd been through um, worked well with the podcast, I, I think I said to you that I'd already found you on Instagram and I'd already uh, earmarked you to do a podcast because I thought, oh, this guy looks interesting. I didn't know your whole backstory then until you sent me the email. And uh, what I, I think is really good about you is, you're, you're only 22. I shouldn't say only 22 because for you, you'll have younger people and you'll think, oh, I'm 22. To me, you're young. Um, yeah. But what I really like is that you want to come on and you want to talk about these issues and you're not afraid to tell people what's happened to you. And that takes some courage and it's inspirational because um, I spoke to someone probably a month, six weeks ago, and we were talking about the impact of social media on young women. And then I said, and I think it also uh, happens to young men nowadays too. And she was like, yeah, that's right. It does. And I don't think it's highlighted enough that young men go through similar issues to what young women go through. And so for you to be speaking out is a really important thing. Thank you. It's, it's one thing I've thought about a lot. When I, when I got to a stage where I said, you know, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable with my past. I talk a lot in my book about acceptance and once I had accepted my past and I knew that I was comfortable telling this story, I felt a sense of obligation. I thought, well, not everyone is, is comfortable with opening up. I've got to a stage where I am. I'm, I'm comfortable telling my story and I have no fear really of being judged for it. So yeah. when I got to that stage, I said, you know what? I have an obligation for the people who can't speak up. It's up to me to speak on behalf of them. And my whole idea was if I can put my story you know, on paper and show the public, then maybe someone else will have the courage to tell a friend or a relative, you know, that they're struggling. So it's my whole idea is just an idea of encouragement about speaking out. I admire you because uh, I think it takes a lot of people a long time to really accept who they are. And I'll just give you an example with this podcast. When I first started in 2019, I started and thought, I'm not going to tell anyone about what health issues I've got, how old I am. I'm going to keep all that to myself. And then gradually, as I did more podcasts, I realized that actually opening up and being authentic actually helped people open up to me and then talk about what they'd gone through because we can hide things away. But what's, what's the point really when you're transparent, then you have nothing to fear from being judged from other people. Absolutely. I think, I think two great words you used there were transparent and, and authentic. You yeah. know, it was authentic in, in, in being true to oneself and, you know, being very honest with oneself and then, you know, being transparent, you know, being open about your problems. So they're, they're two great words you used there. Definitely. Yeah. So look, if we start with your anorexia, you were only 12. What do yeah. you think um, was the catalyst that started that? So I was, I was playing, this was Gaelic football. I was a huge fan of the GA at the time. And I remember, I remember vividly I had seen this film called uh, Coach Carter with Samuel L. Jackson. It's about he's coaching this basketball team and they were young teenagers, maybe 15 or 16, and he drove them you know, to be the best team they could be and he trains the life out of them. You know, he runs yeah. them into the ground. And I remember watching this film at the age of maybe 10 or 11 thinking, if they can do that, I can. You know, I yeah. wanted to be not just a great footballer, I wanted to be a great athlete. I wanted to be big and strong. And I, you know, again, I saw footballers on television and I wanted to be like them. So I wasn't very 
good at football skill-wise. So I thought, right, if I'm the fittest and fastest and strongest player on the team, I will yeah. make up for that. Yeah. So at a very young age, at the age of 11 and 12, I started doing push-ups and sit-ups and I was running, you know, three, four, five kilometers a day. And it's stuff that, you know, you really don't see a, a young boy doing. So yeah, yeah. I started doing quite compulsively. And at first it was it was positive. It, it was working. I was getting fitter and I was feeling good about myself, but it took a bit of a, a bit of a sinister turn. And after some time, I became less concerned about how I was, say, performing on the football pitch and more concerned about how I looked in the mirror. Yeah. And I did start losing weight with all the exercise I was doing. And, you know, I started losing fat and I could start to see my ribs and things like that. So I started, I talk about in my book, it's a very vivid, vivid image. I started looking in the mirror and I started looking at the bones in my face and across my torso. And that became an addiction. I want yeah. it, 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 it soon became less about the performance and more about losing weight. And it became this really unhealthy obsession. And without me even realizing that's, that was my battle with anorexia in full swing. Yeah. By the time I, by the time I was finishing say primary school and starting secondary school, just before I turned 13 in that summer, I lost about, I'd say maybe eight or nine kilos. Wow. And I read, I didn't have that way to lose in the first place, yeah. not at all. And so when I started secondary school, I was, I was relatively tall. I might've been five foot three or four. And I think I was something like 33 kilos. I was a shockingly Ooh. low weight. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was, it was, I was really at, I wouldn't say death's door, but my body really was shutting down and it got to a stage where, you know, my, my parents were, were panicking. They didn't know what to do. And they said, right, no, this has to change. Yeah. And the way I describe anorexia in my book is it's very, it's very controlling. And it's like, um, I think I sent this, this is the extract I sent to you. It's like a monkey in your head. It's like an animal that's taken over and it's a bit of a puppeteer and it's controlling you. And control is a word that's used all the time with anorexia, how you want to control your meals. You want to control when and how you eat. Yeah. And a night, a nightmare for an anorexic person is to have more food on your plate than you want because yeah. you won't allow yourself to clear that plate. So it's, it's, it's a very strenuous, I suppose, mental illness in that sense. And it must really bring on anxiety just looking at a plate that's full, thinking I'm expected to eat all this and I don't want to eat even a quarter of it. Absolutely. And then what happens then is then the common start, you know, or you haven't eaten much or, you know, yeah. um, are you going to eat? And then like, that's one thing I say to people is if you have someone in your circle who's suffering from anorexia, keep your comments at mealtime to a minimum because you might think yeah. you're helping being like, Oh, you should eat more. Yeah. But that's setting off a massive alarm bells yeah. in their head. So yeah, it's a very, you know, you'd be sitting at a dinner table and your heart is pounding because you're waiting for a comment. You're waiting for someone to say something and you just want to get out of there. Yeah, so yeah. it's, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd like to eat on your own really. Cause yeah. like I still sort of, I still liked food, but I wanted to eat as little as possible. So yeah. when I did eat, you know, I didn't want comments. I wanted to just eat what I had and that was enough. Yeah. So I, tr I try and I suppose describe this, this controlling nature. And I say the irony is that you think you're in control. You know, you're the one losing weight and you're the one controlling what you eat. But in reality, it's the mental illness controlling you. Yeah. You are nothing but a puppet on a string. It's in charge, not you. And a very, I suppose, vivid comparison I have is it's like being possessed. You know, I compare it to horror films and poltergeist it's like being possessed by a demon. It's not you. And I try and I address this, the idea of blame a lot when I talk about mental illness, because it can be, it can put a lot, of, especially when you're young, it puts a lot of stress on families and family can feel, you know, they feel like the person that the young person is to blame or that they're seeking attention. And I try and show that 
it's not them. It's not their fault. It, they, they, they are at the mercy of their mental illness. Yeah. And that, you know, when they come out of it, they will go back to their selves and, you know, of course they'd be older and wiser, but they will go back to the person they once were. But right now it's not them. They are completely controlled. So the idea of control is a very is well, sensitive part of the illness and it's a very important part of it. So how long do you think um, you say that it was a, a gradual, a gradual change from wanting to be fit to then not wanting to eat anything because you wanted, I guess, did you like the way your body looked or was it more that you felt like the weight you were losing was actually good for you because it would make you faster at your sport or? Yeah. Like, like I, I was, I was in, before I started losing a lot of weight, I was actually, I was in great shape, like for a, for an 11 or 12 year old, like I, I had teammates who were 14 and 15 who were complimenting me on, on my shape. I was quite muscular for a young man, but yeah. as I began to lose weight, I, I got this correlation in my head that, right, the more weight I lose, you, you said it there, the more weight I lose, the faster I'll be, yeah. the more weight I lose, you know, the longer I can run for in a game, you know, the fitter yeah. I will be. So I got this correlation in my head, weight loss equals I become a better footballer yeah. and that became the correlation. So that, that became, I suppose that's what sparked it. And then as I began to lose and lose, I then became obsessed with the image and then the image part took over. Yeah. And that, that, that's where it became very frightening because there's no limit to that as you go down. No, no, no. And I guess also, I mean, when I was in my late twenties, I went on this body for life program, which was, I think it was taking caffeine pills and lots of shakes and stuff like that. And I started to lose the fat and look ripped. And then you get to a stage like you're saying, I mean, I didn't get to the stage you got to, but then you start to think, oh, now do I need a bit off here, a bit off there? Um, and luckily for me, I just gave up with all the shakes and the caffeine pills. I realized the caffeine pills weren't doing me much good because I was only sleeping four or five hours a night. But I can see how you can be locked into that because I started becoming obsessed with it too, like running home in lunchtime and working out on the gym to try and make my arms a bit bigger or um, skipping a meal. And I was only having two shakes a day and I think a chicken, a chicken breast with a, a, a small bowl of vegetables. And when you do eat something else like a cake, you think, oh, my God, now I'm going to put some weight on, you know. So I can sort of see where you are, but obviously I can't see to the point you got to because how, how, did, you, how did you make the change around? What, what happened to, because it, it, it would become a mindset, wouldn't it, that this is what I have to do? Yeah, it, like you said, it becomes so almost, you know, tunnel vision. Yeah. And obviously the body has, no matter how much fat you lose, the body has fat in certain places, particularly around the midsection, that sort of thing. And it becomes an idea that, okay, I want to lose all of that as well. You want any rules you can see, you want to lose it. So like you said there, it becomes so, so tunnel vision, but how I, I suppose how my recovery sparked, I, I was brought to a doctor and I was sent straight into counseling. And my first memory of counseling is it being quite intimidating, you know, it being a very unpleasant experience. My, my two parents were there and there was a, the counselor and there was a pediatrician as well. So I'm 12 years of age and I've got four adults waiting yeah. for me to for me to yeah. speak and it was terrifying yeah and one thing i say to people is counseling even if it's just one-to-one at first it can seem very daunting but you began you begin to realize that the person you're speaking to has your best interest at heart and when you realize that you can begin to lean into the help that's there and what happened for me is for the first about six weeks in counseling i said very little i said enough to fill the hour in a sense because yeah. like i say about control you don't want to give up the ghost in a sense. You don't want to give up what you've achieved. As yeah. I say, maybe 
the monkey does not want to sit down. You yeah. know, the monkey wants to keep going. So at first it's terrifying. You're in counseling trying to, you know, reverse this and yeah. the monkey's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You shouldn't be here. So at, at the start, it's very ter- terrifying. But after about six weeks of no weight gain, everyone's getting very worried. I had a, I had a moment, of, a very quick moment where I realized if I don't, because at this stage, I couldn't play football because I was too small. I couldn't even take part in PE in school because my body was just at its, at its limit, lower limit. Yeah. And I realized if I don't put the weight back on and, you know, get back to a healthier self, this is going to be my life forever. And I, I'm never going to get back on a football pitch and I'm never going to have a quality of life ever again. And just like that, I said, right, I have to change. And what I tell people about mental illness in general you have to be the one to make the change. You can have all the help in the world, but until you say there's a problem and I want to fix it, then nothing's going to happen. Once you have that moment, then you can move forward. So once I said, this is it, this has to change, then I began to put the weight back on and I began to open up in counselling. And again, we gradually came out of the hole. Well, look, two things on there. I think uh, what you're saying in your last part is that once you accepted that you needed to change, that was what made it a lot easier for you. You, you realised that you were in a place where you, you could only go down if you didn't start going up and it was about accepting uh, that you had to change if you wanted to play football and I guess that's a really lucky thing for you that you were able to do that at 12 to realise that. And another thing I wanted to say because you said about counselling and being in there with four people, I think with counselling, even as an adult, going for a counselling session, you're quite scared. And that's when you choose to go. Now, you didn't have a choice. You were told you had to go. So that's even scarier because you have no idea what's going to happen because all you've been told is, well, we've got to go and see a counsellor and you've got to talk to them. It's like, I'm 12. I don't really know what a counsellor is. What are they going to do? What questions are they going to ask me? Because I think everybody who sees a counsellor, um, goes in with a mask on and it takes a few weeks before they start to lift that mask and say, actually, I'm only going to get out of this what I let them know. Because I know people who have been to psychologists and counsellors who go, ah, oh, yeah, they're no good. And I go, well, have you told them about this or that? And they go, no. And I go, well, how are they going to help you unless you open up? Exactly, exactly. You have to be the one, I suppose. They can only help you if you help them. And as was one thing I've learned about, because um, I've a, a friend of mine, um, his mother is a, a, a counsellor now. And what she says is, you know, a counsellor will never tell you what's wrong. They will lead you to you saying it, you yeah. know. So, of course, you have to work with them, and, you know, and you have to tell them these things, of course. Yeah. Yeah. When people are going to a counsellor because they want to go, it's a lot easier because you can suggest things and then they go, oh, actually, blah, blah, blah. And you go, ah, oh, there's a light bulb moment. They've realised but at 12, that must have been really hard to grasp. Not only have you got uh, that you're in a situation where you're anorexic, but also that control that you have at 12. Because at 12, you're just starting to, I think, really work out who you are and where you fit in. Um, and I know that takes up to 15, 16, 18, 20. But that's the sort of time when you're starting to realise who you are and what you're about. So for someone to start telling you what you're doing is wrong, is also hard because your brain is trying to say, well, no, I think I'm doing okay. And as you say, you've got the mental illness there of anorexia saying, no, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. It's a very, I suppose, it was a very upside down time. It it was terrifying in that sense. And I suppose one thing is, one thing I'd say is when you say there about about acceptance, I mentioned it in my book with, with any problem. Yeah, it's a case of once you say, once you accept and acknowledge 
you know, then, then you can move forward. One thing I will say is I was very lucky in the sense that my, my battle with anorexia was relatively short. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard of stories, particularly in females, lasting you know, up to five or 10 years. Yeah. Whereas I was, in, I was, well, I was in counseling for a year. You could say it lasted for, you know, for two years, the illness in general, but my counseling process lasted for a year. And then it took another year after that for me to properly break out of it. So one thing I, I'm always grateful for is that it was a relatively short battle compared to what other people go through. It, it was a relatively short battle, but it was still a battle that for someone of 12 is a major, a major issue to work with and work through. And you should be, congrat- I mean, look, I don't need to congratulate you. I'm sure millions of people, well, hundreds of people have congratulated on, on you on how far you've come. I'm still trying to get together in my head how you coped with it at 12, you know, it's amazing that you've got from there to where you are now. So what are some of the steps you did as you started to turn the corner and recover? One thing, like there's one very strong memory I have um, from the counseling process that really helped me, I suppose, keep moving forward. And that was, uh, it was a work with, like I say about, I mentioned the mirror there a lot and, when it comes to body image and body dysmorphia, the mirror really is an enemy. Yeah. And so once we'd worked through, I, I was I was nearly, I suppose I, I'd gotten a lot of weight back on at this stage. This was maybe six or eight months into the counselling and my relationship with food had improved and, and I was feeling a lot more positive. I was starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And my counsellor brought me into this room and she put me standing in front of a mirror and uh, she got me to, she traced out the outline of my body. So I guide her, I'd say, okay, my head is there. And she drew, I suppose, my, my body on the mirror based on, I suppose, what I could see. And when you draw your image on a mirror and then stand away from it, it's a very distorted image. Your right. waist is only like this size, your shoulder, like it's all very, yeah. it's not what you, when you look at it, when you stand there, and then when you look at the drawing, it's very different. And it just, it just goes to show us how, you know, the mirror really can play tricks on us. Yeah. And it was a very, it was probably one of the, best processes that's helped me, I suppose, cope with body image. And it helped me to accept because one thing it's hard to accept when, when you do put the weight back on, you know, it becomes hard to accept that you're filling out because with anorexia, yeah. you want to be as thin as possible. So it's, it's a very delicate part of the process to accept that you're, you're putting the weight back on. So this was a key part in accepting that and being okay with this new body image that I now had. So that was a huge part of me moving forward. But you know, when I came out of it, like I said, sport was my motivation. So when I when I came out of counselling, it was like right, you know, I have to keep going for the sake of my sport. And there was, I came out, I finished counselling in September 2012. Yeah. And there was a, still another year where I barely put on any weight. I was still watching what I was eating. I was still being very careful and tiptoeing around my meals, and I was still sort of keeping stock of what I was eating in my head. I would never yeah. eat free. You know, I'd never eat just because I'm hungry. I'd still keep an eye on my not what's it plan, but my meal intake. Yeah. So this went on for another year. And by this stage I was about 14. And when you get to 14, 15, there's guys around you, and you know, some guys are six foot tall and the gap can become very big between your teammates and you at that age. It's an age where some people are growing very rapidly. Yeah. So when I got to 14, so I had, I was now healthy, but I'm not putting on any muscle. I'm not putting on any, any more weight. Yeah. And I realized, right. If I'm going to play football at another 16 level, and then on to a minor level and on to a senior level, I have to keep up. And it was in, I think, mid-2013 when I said, right, this has to completely stop. Watching my food has to stop. I have to properly fill out. I have to, you know, 
building myself up because I can't, even though I am healthy now, I can't keep going being this small because yeah. I was getting thrown around on a football pitch. I was getting picked on a lot at school for being small. Like I mentioned in the email, there was a lot of bullying. I said, this has to change. Yeah. And I said, right. I taught, I, there's a chapter in my book called The Monkey's Funeral where I say, right. And the way yeah. I phrased it is, I shot, the monkey between, I shot the monkey between the eyes and said, right, no, you're gone. Yeah. You're not taking control anymore. I'm going to move forward. And that was when I really began to eat more. And that's when I started my relationship with, with the gym. And one thing about anorexia is mental illness in general is it, it never fully leaves. Yeah. You know, you, you cope with it, you, you overcome it, but it's still there. And the way I phrased it in my book is, I call the chapter the monkey's funeral and a lot of people go, oh, that's wrong because the monkey's still there. He's not dead. And I say, yeah, he's, he's still there. He is dead, but he's still there. And I have a line in my book where I say, I will always be strong in a peculiar sense of honor in his memory. It's a sense of, I will always be anorexic, but I will never be in that physical condition ever again. Yeah, I'll always yeah. remember it, yeah. but I will always move forward from it. So at that age, around 14, turning 15, I said, right, for the, for the sake of my life going forward, this is over. This yeah. is it. Well done. Um, I wanted to pick up on, because you said that in the, in the first place, when you became anorexic, it was because you were doing lots of exercise and you weren't eating much. When you reversed that and you started getting back into eating again and uh, having to exercise again for football, how did that feel? Was that, um, because I imagine if you start exercising again, you would be worried that, am I going to lose weight again? Um, how's my body going to, is it going to fill out? Is it, you know, because in the first place it was exercising and you're losing the weight and now you're being told you've got to exercise to be able to play, even though you've come through this. How, how did that feel to you, having to do the exercise and not worry that you might burn off those calories you were trying to put back on? Well, when I, when I first, you know, like when I first came back to sport, I was... I was very cautious and my, like my, my family were worried. And like we said, yeah. no, like we're going to be very cautious here. I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm eating enough. And I, I was still, I suppose, I, I'd started playing football again before I'd left counselling. And I was keeping an eye on my weight and making sure it wasn't dropping. Because it is, it is a thing where if you haven't exercised in so long and then you do go back to it, your body weight can go down because of that yeah. sudden burning of calories again. Yeah. So I kept, I was very cautious. I kept an eye on things. Is I think because I had been out of action for, you know, the guts of a year and I, you know, I had hated being in this, I suppose, such a physically incapable position that when I did get back to exercising, I felt very grateful and I felt relieved in a sense to be able to be back. Yeah. So I was very cautious. So I knew that if I go losing weight again, I lose this, I lose the football and I lose being able to exercise and I lose what I love. So it became a sense of, I have to keep going Otherwise, I'm going to go back. I have to keep eating. Yeah, yeah. So I was very cautious. And I, I still, like I said, I wasn't comfortable with eating loads. I wasn't comfortable with, you know, I still wasn't perfectly comfortable with gaining more weight. Yeah. But I knew that I had to stay where I was to avoid yeah. going back. So it, it did involve a lot of caution, but the, the body did react very well. And I suppose I had, I was heavier when I came out of counseling than I was going in. So I was a bit stronger. So the body yeah. was, I suppose, in a, in a better place in that way. And I guess it takes a very strong mindset to be able to turn things around and to be able to, when you do have those doubts of, you know, coming through the other side and feeling like, am I burning too many calories? Do I really want to eat this? It, it's a very strong mindset to be able to tell yourself, well, this is what I need to do because this is where I want to be at. Um, and to be able to keep that 
in the in the forefront of your mind that I need to do this to be this. And I guess your love of football really helped you to be able to overcome the monkey. Yeah, it's I say it's quite ironic that it's it was a relationship with sport that put me into that mess, as I say, but it was also a love for sport that pulled me straight back out of it. Yeah. And you know, like you say, it was a case of telling myself I have to eat. And in the year, like I say, when I was when I was 14, the year after my counselling, you know, when I as I say, when I when I didn't put on any more weight, I was looking around me at guys who were filling out and they were building up into strong young men. And I still hadn't, you know, like I say, I was still watching what I was eating. I still hadn't gained that freedom with food where I could eat yeah. plentifully, you know, for the sake of, of of building up. And I looked at them with a sense of jealousy, being like, I wish I could do that. I wish I could eat freely. And I wish I could, even though I was now healthy again, I wish I could yeah. eat freely in order to build up muscle. And I, and I knew that I couldn't. I knew that my brain was still stopping me. And I think that was the, that was the real test, you know, as I say, to, to, to kill the monkey off. That was the real test to be like, in order to change, you have to completely, completely confront this. Yeah. You have to completely get rid of it. You have to completely change your diet. Well, not change, but up your diet yeah. and eat more. And that was, so when I got to 14 turn and 15, I think that was the real test of saying, you've been, you've been eating enough to keep, to, you know, to keep yourself in good health, but now you have to bulk up. Now you have to move forward. And that was yeah. the real test of saying, right, my love for moving forward is going to overcome this. And with your parents, I mean, they were with you along the journey. Uh, it must have been quite stressful for them seeing you um, like that, losing all the weight and not really knowing what to do. How did they come through in, uh, afterwards when you started to bulk up and start to change your mindset and start to be able to eat more and, and not get rid of anorexia but to become comfortable that you could progress? Um, there must have been a lot of relief in them that not normal, even though your book's called normal, but you were normalizing and getting yourself back to a normal life. They, they were certainly relieved. You know, it was one thing I say in my book when I was on the, the downward spiral, you know, my, my parents started questioning things. And that's yeah. that's the, that's a that's a huge, as I could say, alarm bell in your head when when people question your weight loss, it sets off alarm bells and it's a conversation you want to avoid. Yeah. And shortly before I went into counseling, I, re- I remember vividly my mother saying to me, she, cause she had a, she had a friend whose daughter had been anorexic. So she had seen this before. Right. Yeah. And there was a bad case of deja, deja vu for her. Yeah. She sat me down and said, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. I really wanted to just burst into tears and tell her I am in bits and I, I'm, I'm running myself into the ground. Yeah. But I couldn't, the anorexia wouldn't let me. So, you know, for her, there was a huge, huge sense of relief. And there is a, anorexia is a very misunderstood mental illness. And I have one memory where I was in, a, as I was recovering, I was in a hospital, I was getting um, a checkup from a doctor. It was to make sure that my body was, you know, I suppose re- recovering properly and the yeah. puberty process was kicking in. This was maybe yeah. six months into the counseling. And uh, my mother was there and a nurse said to her, she said, everything seems fine. Connor seems to be okay, but we have to be very vigilant of these things. And I didn't know what the word vigilant meant. And yeah. my mother was completely upset at this statement. And I said to my mother, what, what did the nurse mean? And my mother looked at me and said, Connor, the nurse basically told us that we missed the boat. We should have noticed this sooner. Right. And it was only in years to come that I became outraged at that statement that a medical professional said that. And a medical professional led my mother and led my parents and family to blame themselves that yeah. they didn't see this coming. So yeah. a huge, a huge part of 
my work is to show that there is no blame. Nobody is at fault. So my, my parents, they did, they kind of, I realized in years later that they, they did blame themselves. And when my book came out and they were able to read my story, you know, there was a weight lift off their shoulders. I remember my mother ringing me when she first read it. She said, you were, you were beyond saving. And I said, yeah, I yeah. was needed. And it was a relief for her that, you know, there was no blame. They weren't to blame. It wasn't their fault because yeah. even though I had recovered for so many years, it's, it's, it's family nature, it's mother nature or yeah. the nature of parents, sorry, to blame themselves. Yeah. So they, they were relieved when I recovered, but late, in later years mm-hmm. when they read my story, they were completely relieved to see that, you know, this was, this was nobody's fault and this, this was unavoidable, but we, we could get through it. So in the immediate aftermath, they, they were relieved. They were worried that I would go back, you know, yeah. the, with the football and everything. They were worried I could slip back, but thankfully. Which you know, is I only kept... natural, isn't it? I mean, of your course, parents of course. And, and, you know, it, it's okay to say, um, I mean, I, I, I can imagine how they felt, uh, when that nurse said that, that, my God, why didn't we see it? But yeah. I guess unless you've really seen it or experienced it before, it's not something you're looking out for. And as we said when we started, you being a male and you were 12 and you coming out and talking about this, I think is brilliant because there would be other males around 12, 14, 15, 18, you know, who are going through similar things to you, to what you went through. Um and their families would be in the same position. You know, they could be told by us, why didn't you know? Well, because it's unexpected. We would look probably more for a female than we would look for Absolutely. a guy. I mean, yeah. I know that when I was 11 or 12, you could see all my ribs. It was like, you know, I, I didn't eat for years. And then gradually as I started to get older, 12, 13, 14, and I started to eat more, then I started to fill out. But Aunties and uncles, I remember saying to my parents, going, why doesn't he put on any weight? And it's like, well, he's just skinny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's... I've made up for it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's something that just, it can creep up. But one yeah. thing I say is that it, it can be overcome with, with you know, with the, with the work of the individual and with the support of, of the family and friends around them. It's something that, that can be worked through. And one thing I say is that, I have a, a very awful memory of when I was at my lowest point with anorexia, I remember a, a serious sense of finality where I was underweight. I could, could not run. And I thought, this is my life. This is me. This is my life now forever. Yeah. And what I try and tell everyone is that your life can change and move forward in ways that you did not think were possible. Definitely. And I compare, I compare my, I suppose, powerlifting competitions I've done in recent years to that moment where I thought I'm never going to change. And the difference in me in size and weight, it's, it's madness. So I use that, I use that, I suppose, um, situation to show that you would be astounded at how our lives can change in a positive manner. Yeah. I mean, look, you've done amazingly and, uh, thank God that you did get the help when you did the nurse saying to your mum, um, you know, you have to be vigilant. I mean, your, your parents did take you to see the doctor or the counselor. Absolutely. So they, they did realize that there was something wrong, you know, whereas there might be other families where they just think, oh, they've just lost a bit of weight. Your parents were like, no, this doesn't look right. So it, it, they don't have anything to blame themselves for because they did take you to where you needed to go to get treatment. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I got a number of messages and emails from people after my book came out. And I think one that really triggered me was I know, a number of months after it came out, I got a message from um, a lady. I think she was living in New York. She was I think in her 20s, but her younger brother, I think he's her 12 or 13, 
was battling with anorexia. So I immediately, I suppose, I felt the situation, me being in it. And she said that my story really helped their family and particularly the male members of their family to be patient and to understand the process of what the young lad was going through. Yeah. And that, that made me, I burst into tears because my whole, my whole idea is to help people and to have helped someone who was in the, literally the exact same position as me, yeah. that, that broke me into tears to know that my story helped that family have an understanding of the situation. Yeah, and that's why I say it's great that you're talking about it because young males uh, are not looked upon as much for things like this through social media. I, I think that parents, teachers look at social media and say, oh, we have to be careful of these girls looking at these girls with these bodies, you know, and are they going to be anorexic? Are they going to try and copy them, surgery, whatever? Um, and like yourself, you've got through this because things like this, like body image, there is a, a huge increase in men of around 15, 16, taking steroids and things like that to have the perfect body. And, and I think in a lot of situations, they are still overlooked. They're not Absolutely. looked at as something that is a risk category. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nearly, I think in nearly every interview I've done, people have said to me, it's not a male thing, you know, to be anorexic. To be anorexic. Yeah. But ironically, when I started counselling, one of the first things my counsellor said to me is, don't worry, you, you are not the only male in this situation. You know, she knew, she said, this is labelled as a female thing, but you are not alone here. There are far more young men in the situation than you realise. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so it, it is, I, I think the numbers probably are higher. It probably is, uh, you know, more females um, yeah. who suffer with it. But like you say, with, with the right, with social media, there is there is a rise, I suppose, in, in male body dysmorphia, and it's we have more we have more images now causing that. And for me, you know, I, I've I've I have a huge love for the gym, but I've always promised myself one thing: I will never do is the topless photos and that sort of thing, you know, because I I would never want to be a part of what's causing young men to go down that route. Definitely, you know, like I often put up videos of my lifts and things like that, but. I never, I never go with the kind of the, the posing pics because I know, I know that's what causes these downward spirals. And what really, what really sickens me is you see a lot of people posting on Instagram and they say, here's a posed and an unposed photo. And, you know, the Instagram is not reality. And what you see is not what's true. It's all filtered. But the same person 10 posts later will have a posed and filtered photo. And I thought, don't, don't bother trying to be the good guy and then go and go do this like that don't don't bother you know if it's something that really really angers me it's like don't don't act like you know like like you're being innocent and that but at the same time you're doing you're doing these things as well yeah yeah, yeah. no because it is the young people are teenagers are so so influenced you know by what yeah, they, they absorb everything absolutely and for me like this happened for this the anorexia happened for me i think back in 2011 where social media hadn't half the prominence that it has now so i can only imagine how difficult it is for young people to have this illness now where you can see all of this filtered and, you know, completely artificial images of people. Yeah. You know, so it, it is only getting harder, but I do feel that the awareness of it, there is more, I suppose, wrong with the idea of body image and more, more negative influence on young people, but there is more people speaking up about it. So there, it is a two way battle, I suppose. Yeah. Look, I, I have, um, I've had conversations with, friends about images I see on Instagram and it could be the beautiful woman in a bikini tanned looking fantastic 
But my issue is, is it's posted with the hashtag mental health. And I see it as a counsellor, as I don't know what young women are looking at that who might be a little bit overweight and are thinking I need to diet. They might go into anorexia, bulimia, because under mental health, um, but then the, the positive thing of that could be is um, positive body image. You know, I look Absolutely. good, you, you know, uh, I, I'm happy with who I am. I'm confident. So that's where I'm torn between because on the one hand, I'm thinking I don't want young girls looking at this going, that's what I need to be like. But on the other side, it can be I feel good about myself. And the person saying "I my mental health is good because I feel good. I work hard. I look after my body. I eat right. You know, it, it's it's really hard to see who's looking at them and how it's affecting those people. I, absolutely. It's, it's hard to I suppose, monitor the interpretation. It's hard to know how it's being interpretation, I suppose, yeah. per- perceived yeah, by young people. Yeah. It's hard in that sense. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, uh, is there anything else that you want to add to your story on anorexia? I think we've covered pretty much everything. One final remark I'll say, because this will become a relevant uh, point in future episodes, is that I went to counselling once a week for a year and I used to go every Friday, every Friday morning. Yep. And I come into school, you know, I come into school late on a Friday afternoon and my classmates and friends would always ask me, where were you? And I always said the dentist. It's ironic. They must have thought I was getting about 30 fillings at the age of 12. I thought, Jesus, this, this fella's teeth are in bits. So I think it's ironic. I never told anyone I was going to. Now, I later told these friends in later years that that's where I was going. But I was given this idea of if you're going to counselling, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Keep the help and keep the mental health talk between the counselling walls. Don't go outside of it. Yeah, That's a message that really left a mark on me. We can go to counselling, that's no problem. But don't tell anyone about it. Don't I let know. anyone know. Tell them you're going to the dentist, you're going to the doctor, you're going wherever else. And that's a relevant, I think, a relevant point I'll talk about in later episodes because that's that really left a mark on me. That And that, that I think, proved the stigma that if you're going to counselling, no bother but don't tell anyone about it. That, that is a real worry, isn't it? That people are still ashamed to say they've gone and got some help. Whereas I've had people on the podcast before and we've talked about it and we've said how much of a positive thing it is and your friends should be looking at you and going, wow, you needed some help and you went and got it. But I think on the other hand, we're still sort of stuck in that, oh, you needed help? What's wrong with yeah. you? And it shouldn't be that way. Absolutely, there's that element of shame of like, oh, yeah. you needed help, that's not good. But I think now as, as, we, as we move forward, I think we are leaning more to that side of it takes courage to get help. As you say, it takes courage to accept and acknowledge a problem. So I think we are leaning more to that side of if you can say to yourself, I need help and you go and get it, that's a courageous act and that's you looking after yourself. You know, whereas the other side is, oh, well, you needed help, that's a negative thing. So I think we are leaning more to the positive narrative on it. And I think as time goes forward, we will lean, we will lean more in that direction. Yeah, which will be a positive thing, won't it? I mean, we need to break down the stigma. Um, Absolutely. And uh, Absolutely. It, we need to say uh, that you're working on your mental health rather than you have a mental illness. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So do you want to tell people where they can buy your book from? Yeah, so I suppose um, worldwide it's available um, from, from Amazon. And if you go to my website, uh, connornolanauthor.com, that's Connor with one N, you can find the link to Amazon. And uh, for anyone listening, maybe in Ireland or near that, there's a link to a few Irish bookshops uh, there as well. But Amazon is the main, uh, the main worldwide distributor. So it's Connor Nolan Author. Yeah, connornolanauthor.com. And the book is called Normal. Yeah. normal okay well that's good let's hope uh, some people get out there and buy it and learn a bit more about your story we are having you up in the next few weeks to talk about some other issues 
Um, but until then, thank you so much, Connor. That was brilliant. Really enjoyed that. It was inspiring. You're a great communicator. And uh, I think the more people who hear your story will benefit from, from your knowledge. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Thank you. No worries. See you later. Thank you. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other, and thanks for listening.